This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 101, July the 10th, 1985. Some years back, when I was a student, one of the courses I took was one on epic poetry. The elderly professor who conducted the class inciting some passages in Homer, which were not exactly great poetry, said the standard comment of scholars was this. Here, Homer nodded. Well, that sentence is a familiar one in my home because periodically when Dorothy and I go over something I've said or written, our comment is, here, Homer nodded. I do a lot more nodding than Homer. And I did some nodding last time. It was a particularly warm day. I was tired and a great deal more. But uh, this is by way of excusing myself, of course. Uh, I said that the Council of Constance sentenced Wycliffe to death. And I should have said, Huss. But by now, you're all used to my mistakes, so... You're still with me, and I will assume you'll continue to be so in spite of my nodding. I'd like to start again on the same vein as last time, because yesterday I did send in the proofs for my forthcoming book on Christianity in the state, and in the process I've been checking into a lot of reference works to corroborate this or that that I wrote, or to check out a footnote to get the citation correct, and so on. One of the things I have come to realize is that I may have to write another book on the subject in order to say all that I would like to say on the subject. But I want to back up by going to the beginning of the 1960s to an incident that took place at Stanford University. A very fine scholar, a man who was a friend of mine, a man who was a Christian of sorts in that he went to church, very, very conservative church. He believed in God, but he had no desire to apply his Christian faith to any area of life. God was essentially the great insurance agent, and he felt you needed God, but not in any very close day-by-day -day, uh, sense of laying down the framework and the laws for every area of life and thought. The man is uh, uh, still red, and so I won't mention his name, and he was a very likable person. He was invited to give a series of lectures at universities, and one of these was at Stanford. He spoke on liberty and on the threats to liberty on the current political and economic scene. It was an excellent talk, very well worked out, uh, presented with ability and with a great deal of speaking power because he was an accomplished speaker. When he finished, the first question left him in a state of shock. A student raised his hand. 
and challenged his entire thesis by saying, what's so important about liberty? And with that, the professor was virtually incoherent. He did not know how to deal with a generation of students who sat there and saw liberty as a minor thing, were ready to see it removed if certain other things needed to be accomplished. And he suddenly realized he did not know how to talk to these students. As a result, he withdrew from further lecturing. He had, by the way, left his uh, professorial work to work in terms of some research grants so that he was not at that time in the academic community. And he had not seen the great change that was underway with the beginning of the 60s on the student scene. His problem was that he did not have a faith that governed every area of his life and thought. As a result, his thinking was compartmentalized. He could uh, discuss liberty in the abstract in terms of its political and economic implications. But liberty, in any theological sense, he simply had not worked out. And this is why the students, because they had a world and life view that was rigorously and militantly humanistic, reduced him very quickly to incoherence. He did not know how to answer them. I bring that up because it points up a very critical problem in our world today. Let me back up again to recall something that happened even earlier. In the late 40s, shortly after the war ended, Truman had succeeded to the presidency when Roosevelt died. And Republicans were concerned about their candidate in the next election. I was at that time in Nevada. I spoke at the county seat to the top Republicans in politics. And at the time, during the question and answer period, one of the men asked me what my idea of a good candidate for the Republican Party in the next election would be. And just off the cuff, I shot back uh, McKinley. There's more life in him than anyone else in the party today. Uh, they laughed, and then they wanted to know what I meant. I tried to explain myself, but I don't think they comprehended what I was saying. My point was this. The Republican Party holds, like this professor friend of mine, to a political and economic conservatism, or did at that time, 
I would not say it does so entirely today. However, apart from a narrow field of politics and economics and certain issues only, they were substantially humanistic. As a result, their presuppositions, their governing faith, placed them in the enemy camp. They could not go after the opposition systematically, whereas the opposition could devastate them again and again. This problem is very much with us. I belong to a national group of very superior men, some of the very finest men in the country. I was unable, because of a conflict in my schedule, to attend their meeting recently, and I will not be able to attend the next meeting in September, because I shall be elsewhere. I do miss those meetings, because the men on the council are clearly the leadership of the country. Table conversation, I've always found a delight, a, a stimulating thing. But the weakness of this group is simply that they are issue-oriented, not faith-oriented, not governed by basic beliefs that command them in every sphere of life and thought. They are there because they don't like what politics is doing to their business or because they don't like this or that thing. They are issue-oriented. You cannot push them beyond the issues to anything else. And I'm afraid the leadership is becoming weaker and weaker, and the concern with the basic beliefs, the world and life view, a governing philosophy, is not there. There is no consideration of what is law. Where does law come from? Who is the lawgiver? No question raised about what is power and who is entitled to power. What are rights? None of these things. Those of you who listen to our Sunday uh, studies as well as the Easy Chair know that two or three uh, Sundays ago I dealt with natural rights. And I called attention to the fact that as Christians we don't believe in rights, human rights. Why? Who defines human rights? Human rights means whatever the speaker wants to make it mean. So today we have people who are ready to say that human rights mean something good that they believe in, but it can also mean what some other person says. It can mean homosexuality. It can mean abortion. It can mean mercy killings, euthanasia. It can mean child molestation because there are proponents of it in the name of human rights. It can mean whatever anyone chooses to make it mean. Who defines human rights? 
people do. And they define it in terms of what they want. But if you were to get up in the political arena today or in this association of leaders that I mentioned earlier and denounce the doctrine of human rights, you would horrify people. They would not understand what you're talking about. Now, this is the problem with the conservative movement. It is, in essence, humanistic. But it is not systematically humanistic. As a result, it's easier for the opposition to appeal to people. The opposition has a consistent philosophy. It has a philosophy that ties in with what everyone gets in the public schools. To counteract that, what needs to be done is first to continue to build Christian schools. Let me digress there to cite an incident again that took place about 15 or 16 years ago. A very, very fine American, a very wealthy man who had spent a good deal of his life financing movements to turn this country around, was in his offices not far from where Cal Seaton was having a Christian school conference. It was a conference on how to do it, how to establish Christian schools, dealing with the practical mechanics of it as well as the philosophy. He sent word that he'd like to have me visit him in his office. I had met him about five or six years before, and two or three times our paths had crossed. Now he was old. He was no longer in control of his properties and his funds. Because of advancing age and his inability to maintain any kind of working schedule, the family had taken over his sons and daughters, who did not share his perspective except in a very mild way and a business manager, a very personable man, very pleasant, but with no great drive and commitment as the old man had. It was a very sad visit, because here was a very superior man. And what he did was to encourage me in my work and to say, I wish I understood now, uh, understood years ago what I understand now. Now that I no longer have control of things and have had time to sit back and think, and he said, I've come to realize that to change this country, you're going to have to start with the children. You're going to have to have a different kind of education. And you're going to have to have a different kind of faith than we have had. So, he said, I want to encourage you 
and to tell you how very sorry I am that I cannot help. That man saw the problem too late. And unless we begin to realize that we're not going to turn this country around, unless we have a faith that governs us, a faith that creates a different kind of law order, a different kind of politics, economics, education, and all things else, and different kinds of churches. We have no future. I believe God has a tremendous future. But God can set aside the United States. He's set aside a lot of people before, a lot of nations, and call up another country. So, we had better wake up to a root and branch faith in order to accomplish anything. Now, in this book which I sent off, Christianity and the State is the title of it, one of the points I make is that while the family is a natural entity, the State is not. The state is an artificial creation. It does not have the ties that bind it together as a family does. A man and wife may think very highly of some of their friends and neighbors, but this, there is a special tie that binds them to their children. And unless their children go astray, which means then a in the faith they must cut them off, they have a bond to their children. But the state is not a natural entity in the same way as a family. The church is a supernatural entity. It is created by faith in the triune God. And it has a unity all its own. But what about the nation-state? Its boundaries are artificial. Why are the boundaries of the United States where they are? And why are the boundaries of Germany and of France and of Austria where they are, or of Italy? In Italy, the people don't call themselves Italians. They call themselves Sicilians or Florentines, or Neapolitans, or Romans, in terms of the locality. In France, the Bretons don't like being a part of France. They'd rather be in independent. They're Gales. The Irish have no love for England. There's a lot of trouble in North Ireland over that. And the Welsh are not... English are not happy altogether. They have their own language. It isn't a common language. It isn't a common racial or national background. This is why it's nonsense to try to apply that kind of standard to Africa today. There isn't a country in the world that is radically and fully homogeneous. 
You might cite Japan, but remember, I dealt with this a while back when I cited the fact that not only do you have the remnants of the Aborigines, the Harry Ainus, but you have the untouchables, a large number of Japanese who are an untouchable class. And certainly you have them in India. The state is an artificial entity. This does not mean that you have to be an anarchist. There are lots of artificial things in our world. But the state is an artificial entity. Its boundaries are arbitrarily created by certain events. What makes Hawaii and Alaska natural parts of the United States? And why isn't Canada a part of us? Or why aren't we a part of Canada? And considering the number of Hispanics we have in this country, we have as many as some Central American countries and more. You see the problem. Now, we have to see civil government as a religious, not a nat natural entity. In the ancient world, they recognized this. Every state had its own gods, its own religion. This is why biblical law forbade treaties with any power that worshipped other gods. Because biblical law recognized and God ordered that people recognize that a civil government is a religious entity as surely as any church is. It is a law body. Laws historically have always come from gods. Laws have always been recognized as religious because laws tell you what is right and wrong. They deal with morality, with ethics, and morality is a branch of religion, inescapably so. So today our religion is humanism and our laws are humanistic. We have a religious state, a humanistic state, and we must recognize this fact and deal with it. Well, to give you some data on this, because as I say, I was reviewing some things and getting an urge to sit down and write more on this. I quote now from Pierre Grimaud, G-R-I-M as in Mary A-L, The Civilization of Rome, a, a good book. And he says, and I quote, Roman morality was the subordination of the individual to the city, unquote. And the city was an eternal fact, a religious fact, hence the expression eternal Rome. Rome was a divine entity. 
And in fact, all who were Romans were divine and were one with the gods after death. The gods were departed Romans. Let me quote further from Grimal. Roman power, for this is the meaning of the term imperium Romanum, which we translate very clumsily by the ambiguous expression Roman Empire, was an abstract reality of a juridical and spiritual nature symbolized from the first century A.D. onwards by the divinity of Rome, to which was joined but only on a secondary plane that of Augustus. A divinity is a supernatural entity which admittedly manifests its existence by action on the human world, but which is placed above this action and transcends it. No Greek city ever had been deified in its own right. In the classical period, they liked to take a deity as their symbol, but the body politic consisting of the citizens, at Rome the populace, had never attained a degree of transcendence that could confer upon it a supreme dignity above all individual beings. It was Rome that not only imposed, but which is still more important, formulated this hitherto unknown concept, and at the same time gave all her subjects the hope of becoming members of the divine city. Unquote. He goes on to discuss the fact that uh, for example, Julius Caesar was made a god. But this was nothing unusual. Anyone who died acquired some sort of divinity. Let me quote. Uh, the last divinity installed by the Romans in the Forum, that is, in sacred soil, was no other than the dictator Caesar. After the assassination on the Ides of March, his body was burned by the crowd in the Forum. This place had not been chosen at random. Caesar, descended from Mars, was thus returning to his father, the god. On the side of the pyre, a marble column was erected and also an altar. It was usual to think that a deceased person had acquired a sort of divinity by the mere power of death. How much more natural to ascribe divinity to the invincible hero who had been triumphant so many years without ever knowing defeat and whom the people of Rome already worshipped in his lifetime. Unquote. The Roman games were religious functions, something we often forget, and which the author, as well as others before him, have developed at great length. The uh, bloody spectacles of the arena were very, very important. They were, in a form, sacrifices of the empire. And as a result, we cannot understand Rome, really, if we don't see its religious character.
Well, this passed into European history and the battle between church and state throughout the Middle Ages and the present has been because of the paganism that the state has picked up. One of my professors was Ernest Kantorowicz. One of his great books is Frederick II, 1194-1250. This, the great Hohenstaufen Emperor, had his birthplace regarded and hailed as the new Bethlehem because he was the new savior. Frederick II, the Hohenstaufen, was almost certainly not a Christian, although he recognized that Christianity was the realm, the uh, religion of the realm, and therefore he was uh, very pro-Christian in that he felt people needed a religion to keep them in line. His private beliefs were probably Muslim, if anything, and he had a harem in Muslim fashion and was on good terms with Muslim rulers. He uh, held to Joachimite thinking. The abbot Joachim had formulated certain heretical beliefs. He divided the history of the world into three ages. The first was the age of the Father, the Old Testament, in which law and justice governed humanity. The second age of history was the age of the Son, in which uh, grace and love, uh, grace and uh, atonement governed humanity. The third age was the age of the Holy Spirit, in which now man was beyond law and beyond grace, and essentially the thinking is similar to what we heard about in the 60s, the birth of the age of Aquarius, third age thinking. Uh, Hegel adopted it, a great many heretical movements have adopted this third age kind of thinking. Frederick II accepted this and formulated the theory of three atoms. The first age, the age of uh, the God the Father, was the age in which the great man and the Lord of the age was Adam. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was the head of the age of the Son. The third age now had as its third and last Adam, Frederick II, the Hohenstaufen. He believed in his infallibility and had this doctrine promulgated and, of course, he didn't have to invent it. It came from uh, the Romans. And uh, 
He said, and I quote, we scorn to err. He couldn't make an error. It was beneath him. Quoting from uh, Kantarovitz's study, the Pope under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit may be infallible in matters of faith. Similarly, the emperor, overfilled by justice, is infallible in matters of law. In accordance with the imperial infallibility, Frederick adopted, as the Norman kings before him had done, the sentence of Roman law. To discuss the emperor's judgments, decrees, and statutes is sacrilege. A sentence that was so vital to the constitution of the whole state that Frederick boldly quoted it to the Pope when he ventured to criticize some measures of the emperors. The emperor was the pinnacle of the world structure. Unquote. Now, it's interesting, the Pope, Innocent III, had been his uh, guardian and tutor when he was a young man. So, uh, we can understand why Innocent III was a bit testy at times and bitter against his former pupil. Now, uh, this was not all. Frederick held that there was a new trinity, God, the emperor as emanation and a son of God as the second person of the trinity, and justice. This was the new secular trinity which dominated the state. And uh, according to Frederick, law incarnate upon earth was the way to describe him. His will was law. There's much more here that goes into everything that uh, Frederick did he created the first state university, by the way, and tolerated none other, and wanted to control the church totally, and he had the first demand for the separation of church and state in his day by the Vatican, in uh, relatively modern terms, that is, because the state wanted to absorb and control uh, the church great deal more that can be said on the subject, but let me add one thing further. Uh, this quoting from Oscar Halecki, The Millennium of Europe, and uh, I dealt with this. In fact, I have an entire chapter in uh, Christianity and the State on the Inquisition. Uh, before the church, uh, or anybody else, and I quote, Emperor Frederick II had made heresy a crime against the state and decreed for his Italian possessions and then for his whole realm that heretics must be burned at the stake. This was part of his general policy which introduced the principles of totalitarian government into the Christian commonwealth contrary to its basic conception. 
It also was a precedent fully developed after more than two centuries in the Spanish Inquisition, which, to the great harm of Christendom, placed the control of orthodoxy in the hands of secular national authorities and made it serve the interests of the state." Unquote. As I point out in Christianity and the State, the Inquisition was by and large a civil affair. Some popes favored it, but by and large it was the church that tried to prevent inquisitors from having their way. The reason why the state wanted the Inquisition was not because of any zeal for the faith. Frederick II treated Christianity with ill-concealed tolerance and scorn. It was uniformity. Keep everybody in line. Let nobody stray and then control the church that controls the people. This was the goal. And it hasn't changed too much. Kantorowicz, in another study entitled The King's Two Bodies, which has been reprinted, and I think Frederick II is back in print also, goes into how the doctrine of the two natures of Christ was carried over in the two natures of the state or of the king, divine and human. And the cry, the king is dead, long live the king, was born out of that theology. Namely, that the monarchy never dies. Therefore, you proclaim the continuing life of the monarchy, even as you pro proclaim the death of the current king. A doctrine of mysticism with regard to parliament, for example, uh, was developed in England, and so on and on. Moreover, the ruler, the kings as saviors, was developed in great detail. Kantorowicz, in another st study, Laudes Regii, went into this. The fact that uh, when a king entered a city, there was a liturgical acclamation in his welcome. In that, before he entered the city, the rulers of the city and the people lined the entrance of the city with simulated palm boughs, using the words of Palm Sunday and Christ's entry into Jerusalem, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is the kind of thing that prevailed. And we need to recognize that the state has become the church of modern man. The area where he looks for salvation. And therefore, we cannot appreciate what the state is until we see this background. And this is why I may tentatively title my next study, The Church, The State as the New Church. 
Now on to, well, let me deal with this briefly. Not uh, too long ago, Thursday, June the 25th, in the Stockton Record, there was an article, and the headline made me think we were really getting some justice. It reads, Ethics Panel Throws Book at Judge. Well, let's see how they threw the book. The judge was the top judge, and the presiding, well, chief justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. The Judicial Ethics Panel charged him with associating with criminals, accepting gifts from convicted felons, and committing adultery. This was um, just one of a long list of charges. The judge refused to testify before the panel. He has been the top judge for nine years. How did they throw the book at him? Well, four months suspension without pay. A four-month suspension without pay. Makes your heart bleed for that poor judge. Well, on to uh, another subject now. One of the interesting books that I read or reread, because I first read all the works of St. Cyprian many, many years ago as a student, this is an edition of the Lapsed and the Unity of the Catholic Church by St. Cyprian. His uh, language is powerful, very compelling. He speaks, by the way, repeatedly of the laws of God. But the basic problem that he is dealing with is the fact that when persecution broke out after a period when they had had none, many people hastened to comply with Roman regulations and to renounce Christ. Large numbers did. And after it was over, there was a problem. Some of them repented and wanted to be restored to their place in the church. And, of course, there were those who absolutely refused to allow them to return. They were to be forever excommunicated. Others were ready to take them back without asking any questions or any trial period. And St. Cyprian wrote this a little book to deal with a problem. Let me quote. Oh, the scandal of it. Some forget all this and let it slip their memory. But they did not even wait to be arrested before going up to offer sacrifice to the emperor. They did not wait to be questioned before they denied their faith. Many were defeated before the battle was joined. They collapsed without any encounter. 
thus even depriving themselves of the plea that they had sacrificed to the idols against their will. Without any compulsion, they hastened to the forum. They hurried of themselves to their death, meaning their spiritual death, as if this was what they had long been waiting for, as if they were embracing the opportunity to realize the object of their desires. How many, as night fell, had to be put off till later, and how many even begged the magistrates not to postpone their doom, that is, the opportunity to sacrifice to the emperor and to clear themselves of being Christians. What pretext of pressure can such men allege to excuse their crime when it was rather they who pressed for their own destruction but surely, even if a man did come to the capital spontaneously, even if he approached of his own accord to commit himself to this grim crime, did not his step falter, his eyes cloud, did not his heart quake, his limbs tremble? Surely his blood ran cold, his tongue clove to his palate, his speech failed him? Could a servant of God stand there and speak and renounce Christ? whereas it was the world and the devil he had renounced before? Was not that altar where he was going to his death, in fact, his funeral pyre? When he saw that altar of the devil smoking and reeking with its foul stench, should he not have fled in terror as from a place where his soul must burn? Poor fellow, why bring any other offering or victim for the sacrifice? You yourself are the offering and the victim come to the altar. There you have slain your hope of salvation. There on those fatal fires you have reduced your faith to ashes. Well, he goes on and he says many of them could have fled elsewhere and been safe, but they would not renounce their possessions between their property and Christ. They chose their property and renounced Christ. And in Cyprian's words, my brothers, we must not hide the truth. We must not pass over in silence the true nature of our malady nor its cause. What deceived many was a blind attachment their patrimony, and if they were not free and ready to take themselves away, it was because their property held them in chains. Unquote. It's a very powerful and a moving book, and well worth rereading more than once. So, um, I commend it to you. One of the points he makes, by the way, uh, without underrating the atonement, that is the test of the Christian life. He says, justice of life is needed if one is to conciliate God, who is our judge. His commandments and warnings must be obeyed if our 
merits are to receive their reward. This has reference, let me say parenthetically, to the belief that is still a part of the Christian faith. We are saved by faith and we are rewarded according to our works. That statement you can find in Berikoff, the great Reformed theologian of a generation or two ago. Beautiful book, well worth reading. Interesting that he speaks, by the way, of mixed marriages as a form of prostitution and tells parents that they are giving members of Christ in prostitution to pagans. Very fine work. Now on to something else. This is the kind of book that uh, rarely gets any notice. It's an old one, published in 1964, the title G. Allen Hancock, a pictorial account of one man's score in fourscore years, format and text by DeWitt Meredith, privately published the kind of book that is called a vanity book. Uh, Captain Hancock was a distinguished Californian. And this book, members of the family put out in honor of him in his old age. Captain Hancock, however, is worth remembering. For this reason, there are some uh, very important roots in California history that his family has. There are two families that came into union in his parents. One was the family of Count Agostón Arasti, a Hungarian, a nobleman who came to this country, uh, I believe, before 1860. He was the man who started the wine industry in California. His uh, story is a very interesting and important one. He was in a variety of activities, but primarily the wine business. After him, a great many others came into the Napa Valley and adjacent areas. The Hancocks were powerful in that they were pioneers in the oil business in this state. The La Brea Tar Pits was a part of uh, their work. They owned that property. It was workmen on their ranch who first discovered the uh, bones of uh, the old prehistoric animals there. And it was he who established the scientific work there. Captain Hancock also uh, was a pioneer in oceanography. He was a pioneer in aviation and research therein. So a great many things were done by Captain Hancock alone, as well as what his forebears did. 
So, I think it's a very interesting account, and sometimes we forget how a prominent family will have an important role in a history. The Hancocks and the Arasthes have had an important role. And it does demonstrate that there is something to heredity. I used to know a man who uh, was born to his parents when they were in London in 1914. His parents were half Armenian, half Russian. They were of the Russian aristocracy and nobility. They returned immediately to Russia because the father had an important role there militarily. They were never heard from again. The child who was left with a nurse, and they were going to send for the child as soon as the child was old enough to travel, was cared for by friends, had nothing. He had, by the way, uh, something like 20 million in a bank in New England, but it was seized with the revolution when he was just a child, and the U.S. never returned the seized funds. However, he became a multi-multi-multi-millionaire on his own. This is heredity. On the other hand, lest we feel that uh, heredity is the decisive factor, we also know that there are too many instances of people with the worst kind of heredity imaginable who come out of nowhere are among the greatest minds we have known. The simple fact is, we don't know much about the subject. And almost everything written in the area should be regarded as premature and uh, inadequate. Uh, so we cannot say heredity is the determining factor, although certainly it does apparently uh, count very often, but we can be grateful to God that he brings out greatness and men with vision and foresight and inventive abilities out of every kind of group imaginable. But meanwhile, today we tend to depreciate sometimes in some circles the uh, value of family and heredity. There's no question that the Hancock family represented a distinguished heritage and an important one in American history. I like to pick up this type of book because they are often gold mines of historical information and good insights into the life of a people. Well, our time is just about up. It's too late to start another subject. Um, I hope this concentrated uh, session dealing with some of the things I want to deal with subsequently in a book uh, was not uh, too heavy a session. But I enjoyed it, and I trust you did. God bless you all. Thank you for listening.